Um, my name's Frank, um, I'm one of the elders um, here at the Hallows Church, um, and I've got the privilege of um, taking us through the next section of the letter to the Philippians that we've been going through uh, together as a church. My wife Debs and myself, we moved to um, Seattle about five years ago, and I quickly got involved with the rugby team. Um, rugby was a sport that I played for about 20 years, and uh, I wasn't playing, I was coaching, so I kind of like getting a little bit older, moving into that kind of new uh, phase of my life with rugby. So I was the strength and conditioning coach for two years um, for the Seattle Saracens, who are now called Seattle Rugby. Um, and as I, as I got to know the team and as I kind of spent time around them, and as I got more of a sense of uh, the culture of the team, it was actually really profound um, and really, uh, really striking to me um, just how much unity was on display in, in this rugby team. The team was a diverse. Um, <laughs> the fact that I got that far without a mic tells you that I've got a very loud voice. There we go. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so the uh, this team that I was involved with, there was a, a diverse, um, diverse range of, of ages, diverse range of skin colours, diverse range of backgrounds. But there was a really strong sense of family and collective identity. You could tell that they really, really loved each other and that they strived for the good of the team, not just for themselves as individuals. And honestly, I was kind of stunned by what I saw. Not only was I struck by the unity that I saw, but I was also challenged as I hadn't seen this kind of unity in most of the churches that I belonged to growing up and as an adult as well. And it made me long for a unity like this in the Hallows Church and yearn for the kind of fruit that we would see if we could replicate this kind of culture of family, togetherness, and unity. Today's, today's passage is an appeal from the Apostle Paul for this kind of steadfastness and unity. So let's read Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30 together. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction to them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Lord, thank you so much for your words, and I thank you so much for, the, for this letter um, that we get the, the great privilege of, of going through together over the next few weeks. And Lord, I just really pray that, as we were singing just now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would, would lead us in this time now as we consider these great words and I pray Lord that you'd help us to apply it uh, to our lives and to the life of our church as well. In your great name Lord. Amen. So we're going to consider three things together um, throughout this passage. We're going to consider number one, Paul's appeal, number two, Paul's desire and then number three, Paul's reminder. So let's look at Paul's appeal. So verse 27 of chapter 1. 
It's the beginning of an exhortation section in the letter to the Philippians, which ends in verse 18 of chapter 2. And in this section, Paul's urging the Philippian church to pursue steadfastness and unity. In the previous section that Jake did a great job of taking us through last week, Paul, he's languishing in prison in Rome, and he's expressing a desire to come to see the Philippians again, not knowing when this reunion might take place. And so he makes an appeal to the Philippians to live well while he is absent from them. As Paul begins this appeal, he first reminds his readers of their true citizenship, specifically that they are citizens of heaven. Paul likely brings this up because Philippi was a prominent Roman colony, which was home to many retired Roman soldiers. So there was a strong sense of nationalism in, in the culture of Philippi. And the inhabitants of Philippi had Roman citizenship inferred upon them, and they were very proud of this fact. So Paul, he's making a deliberate point in mentioning that though the Philippians lived in a prominent place and enjoyed prominent status as citizens of the Roman Empire, what mattered more was that they were citizens of heaven, the eternal city, which was ruled not by an emperor, but by Almighty God himself. The reason why Paul starts with their citizenship is because knowing your true identity shapes every part of your life. And so in order to live out the calling that you have as God's chosen, beloved sons and daughters and as God's people, we need to know where we belong and who we belong to. If you've ever seen the Toy Story films, which I'm a massive fan of, you'll remember that all of Andy's toys have Andy's name written on them somewhere. And in the case of Woody, it's like the main character of the film, if you've not seen it, he's got A-N-D-Y written on the sole of his boot. And he's very proud of that. If you watch the first Toy Story film, he's kind of always looking at it, and it you know, gives him a real sense of who he belongs to and, and his identity. But in the second film, Toy Story 2, which is just as good as the first one, Woody falls into the wrong hands. He gets kind of stolen from uh, Andy and the family, and he ends up in the hands of uh, someone who wants to basically make a lot of money because it turns out that Woody's actually like a collectible item. So he, he undergoes this um, very, very um, kind of intensive refurbishment process to try and get him back to what he would have been like when he was in the box, you know, being sold in the, in the store. And part of this refurbishment is that the letters on his, on his foot, they get painted over. And if you watch that second film, Woody then has a bit of a kind of existential crisis. Because he no longer knows you know, where he's from, who, who owns him, who, who has um, that right to call Woody his own. But then there's a great scene later in the film where Woody scrubs off the paint. And you can see, a little bit faded, but you can still see it, A-N-D-Y, on the sole of Woody's boot. And it once again reveals to him who he belongs to, and then it helps him to make sense of his place in the world and how to live in it. So, as Christians, no matter where we live in this world, one thing remains constant. We are citizens of heaven. Unlike the visa that Debs and I were on when we moved here, 
Our citizenship to heaven is permanent. We are citizens of heaven right now. We will be for the remainder of our lives if we remain faithful to Christ. And then we will be for all eternity as well. See, we belong to our loving creator God. We bear his name. We're his children. And if we continue in faith, there will never be a day when this isn't true for us. Because God will always be faithful to us. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your, great is your faithfulness. So once Paul has drawn the attention of the Philippians to their true identity, he goes on to urge them to live lives that show that they are indeed citizens of heaven, bearing the name of Jesus and his gospel. Now what a lofty calling this is, to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. When I first read this, it felt to me like an overwhelming command. I was left feeling, how can I possibly live up to such a high standard? Now, it is important that we acknowledge that being called into a life with Jesus, it is a weighty calling. On many occasions, when Jesus was questioned about God's law, rather than making it easier by lowering the bar, he actually raises the bar, setting a new standard for godly living. Take, for example, Jesus' teaching on adultery. He says this in Matthew 5, 27 to 28. You have heard that it is said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks upon a woman, woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus does this many times in his teaching ministry, pushing the bar for godly living up rather than down. Living gospel-saturated lives isn't easy. When Jesus calls us to him, he calls us to a narrow path, not a broad one, to a life of self-denial, not of self-fulfillment. This command from Paul, it might feel jarring to us because in general, in Western evangelical church culture, we talk a lot about being saved by grace alone through faith alone, which is true and should constantly be reinforced to avoid sliding into legalism. But in our desire to champion faith and grace, we too often downplay the type of life that Jesus wants us to live and its ethical demands on our lives. Listen to James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? So how should we respond to this appeal from Paul? Is the answer to simply try harder? To just be better Christians? To, to make more of an effort? Well, I think the scriptures teach us that responding to Paul's appeal is less about our efforts and more about our encounters. You see, the people we encounter in life can leave lifelong marks on us and shape us either for the good or the, or the bad. Perhaps you can think of a person you've encountered that genuinely changed your life. When I was 18, I went on a gap year program with a Christian charity in the UK. And the program I was on was led by two incredibly faithful and Christ-like guys named Ian and Colin. And getting to spend five months around those two had a huge impact on my life. 
And I probably wouldn't be up here preaching today if I hadn't had the opportunity to encounter these two brilliant disciples of Jesus. Now, if fallen sinful people can have this kind of effect on us, then we should expect our encounters with Jesus to be truly life-changing. The Bible is full of people who encounter Jesus and their lives are completely turned upside down. Take, for example, Luke chapter 8, where we read of a demon-possessed man who lived a tortured life in a graveyard, naked, chained, in complete isolation. No one dared approach this man until Jesus calmly walked up to him, casted out his demons, and by the end of the story, the man is dressed and in his right mind, and he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, back in community once again. If we are to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, we must seek out regular encounters with Jesus. The gospel of God, the good news that has come to us, is a person. Jesus, sent from the Father, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, has made it possible for us to encounter him through his atoning sacrifice on the cross and his decisive defeat of death in the resurrection. Hear these words from 2 Corinthians 17 and 18. I've done that again. I did that last, last time I preached. I forgot the chapter. I think it's 3, 17 to 18. Apologies about that. Um, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of God, and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. See, when we encounter Jesus... When we gaze upon his beauty, we cannot help but become more like him. When we encounter his gentleness, his tender kindness, his servant heart, his patience, his fierce love, his care for the poor, and his passion for the lost, we cannot help but be changed. I found myself asking this question as I read this passage. When was the last time I had a deep encounter with the living Lord Jesus. I know that for me, all too often, I simply do not prioritize time gazing upon Jesus. Sure, I, you know, I read the Bible, I pray, I'm diligent with my other acts of Christian service. But reading these words brought it home to me once again that what I really need, more than anything else in this life, are deep encounters with Jesus. With the one who said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within them. If we try and live gospel lives without regularly encounter Jesus, regularly, regularly encountering Jesus through his Holy Spirit, and his living word in our times of public and private worship and devotion, then it will feel like running a marathon without drinking any water. And our Christian lives will always feel like a heavy burden to us. But if we seek out Jesus, he promises to carry the weight for us. Hear his words in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Make no mistake, Paul's appeal to live lives worthy of the gospel is lofty and weighty. Receiving the gospel means that we are called to a higher standard of living. But praise God that we do not do this on our own. Jesus is our best friend. Let me just say that again. Jesus is our best friend, our brother and our teacher. And if we regularly seek him out to encounter him in all his glory, then our lives will no doubt be changed as we simply imitate him in every aspect of our lives. So we've considered Paul's appeal, number one. Now we turn our attention to Paul's desire. After Paul's appeal to the Philippians to live lives worthy of the gospel, he then shares that his desire is, if he comes to them or only hears about them, that he would hear that they are a united and steadfast church. This is the news that Paul is longing to hear. According to Paul, if the Philippians are living lives worthy of the gospel, it will result in a radical unity and steadfastness in the church. Let's take a closer look at the second half of verse 27 as we unpack Paul's desire. So verse 27b says this, Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you. You are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending for the faith of the gospel. Now how does Paul expect this kind of unity and steadfastness to be possible? Well firstly, Paul points to the role of the Holy Spirit, writing that he wants to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit. Now, our CSB translations that we use here at the Hallows have done us a bit of a disservice here because they use a lowercase s in the word spirit. Without going into unnecessary detail, it's highly likely that Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit here rather than a oneness of spirit or a community spirit, which the lowercase s would suggest. Biblical commentator Gordon Fee writes that this idea of community spirit doesn't show up anywhere else in Paul's writing. However, if we look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18 and Ephesians chapter 4 verse 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13, Paul uses the same Greek words in these verses as he does in, in Philippians 1 27b. And in Ephesians and Corinthians, Paul is clearly referring to the Holy Spirit. So why does Paul reference the Holy Spirit in the context of church unity? Well, I think it's clear that Paul sees the receiving of the Holy Spirit as the common experience of every member of the Philippian church. And therefore, the Holy Spirit is to be the source of their unity. As we make our way through the letter to the Philippians, I would highly recommend that you read Acts chapter 16, as it gives us a glimpse into the start of the church in Philippi. In Acts 16, we read that some of the very first members of the Philippian church were a woman, was a woman named Lydia, a Roman jailer, and a slave girl. Now you'd be very, very hard pressed to find three more different people to build a church upon. Lydia was an affluent, cultured, rich businesswoman. 
The Roman jailer was likely a retired Roman soldier who'd probably seen it all. And the slave girl had recently been delivered from an evil spirit after meeting Paul. And who I imagine was very vulnerable and just beginning to find her feet in the world after being freed from her old slave masters. So, in a worldly sense, this really isn't the ideal church planting team. You can point to a number of possible friction points and various scenarios in which this young church could come to ruin. But in God's eyes, these were precisely the people he wanted to begin his church in Philippi. The Philippian church grew and was successful, not because its members were all the same, but because they all had received the Holy Spirit, God himself, who now lived in each of their hearts through faith. Their amazing unity and steadfastness were possible because they all shared in the one spirit. It was this common sharing of the Holy Spirit that bound them together in harmony with one another. As the Hallows Church, we could do well to learn from the Philippian church. In order to be unified as a church, we do not need to all look the same. We do not need to all do similar jobs. We don't have to all come from the same background. Lydia, the jailer, and the slave girl teaches that God often chooses to put together a ragtag bunch of people who, in worldly terms, would never have anything to do with one another. So that... God can have the glory when diverse groups enjoy a a radical unity through the sharing of the Holy Spirit. My parents recently visited Seattle and they they came to the Hallows um, last Sunday. And one of the things that they pointed out was the diversity in the room. Praise God that he is strong enough and wise enough and good enough to unite us despite our differences through the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. Go back to the text. The fruit of the powerful, unifying spirit of God in the Philippian church was threefold. They stood firm, number one. They were in one accord, number two. And they were contending together for the gospel, number three. I felt as I was preparing this sermon that this kind of church unity is what we should be pursuing as the Hallows Church. COVID-19 the firing of our lead pastor, and then the painful separation of the three churches that were once serving together under the banner of the Hallows has left us in a vulnerable place as a faith family. And you could argue that it is a miracle that we've been able to weather such a sustained storm without folding. Despite this vulnerability, God has been doing some incredible things in and through us as a church. Just in the past four months, We've seen people come to know the Lord. We've seen a baptism. We've welcomed in many new people. We've continued to reach out to the most vulnerable in our communities. And we recently went on a camping trip in which 12-year-old Delaney Arthur saw people sharing their spare tents and sleeping bags, cooking meals and inviting people to join in, worshipping and praying for one another and having fun together. And compared what she saw to what she'd recently read in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, which describes the awe-inspiring fellowship of the early church. God has indeed been very good to us. 
And we are only seeing these encouraging signs because of the kindness and grace of God towards us as a church. However, we're heading into what could potentially be an even more critical time in the life of the Hallows as we assess our various options going forward. Into this upcoming season, Philippians 1, 27-30 speaks so clearly. We are to make it our personal mission to grow in our friendship with Jesus so that we can live lives worthy of the gospel. We're to celebrate the fact that though we're all so different, we all have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that, that is the fruit that will bind us together, that will be the glue in our church that holds us together and keeps us united. Whatever happens over the next 6 to 12 months, let's stand firm together, not letting any negative talk or gossip or slander undermine our foundations. Let's continue to hold firmly to the word of God, because to do so is to stand on solid ground. Let's, let's make sure that we are regularly meeting together, prioritizing gathering in person on Sundays, midweek in our missional communities, and on Saturday mornings for our prayer meeting. Let's be of one accord together, seeking after the things of God together, finding areas where we agree, rather than looking at the ways that we disagree. Let's let our priorities fall out of scripture and not our own ideas about what we should prioritize. And let's be gracious towards one another when we do disagree and quickly seek reconciliation. And let's contend together for the faith of the gospel. As I shared, my mum and dad visited Seattle this month and when they came to the Hallows, they said that they were struck by how missional the Hallows church is. And I think they're spot on there. I think it's in the DNA of the Hallows to share Jesus with our friends and neighbours, with our city and with the nations. So let's continue to do gospel work together, extending the life-altering message of Jesus to Seattle and the ends of the earth. And this brings us to Paul's reminder. Verses uh, 28 to 30 give us the reason that Paul was so keen that they remained united and steadfast. It's because they were facing opposition. As we touched on earlier, Philippi was a Roman colony which Octavian, later the Emperor Augustus, had populated with retired veterans of the Roman army. And as a result, the culture in Philippi was very nationalistic. And around the time Paul was writing, there was a growing cult of the emperor, with every public event involving a ceremony which gave, which gave honor to the emperor, who people referred to as Lord and Saviour. This posed a hard choice for the Philippians. Go along with the worship of the emperor, call him, call him Lord and Saviour, or pledge their allegiance to the one true Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and potentially face persecution as a result. Though we can't say for certain what opposition the Philippians were facing, it's safe to assume that they chose to live out their citizenship to heaven and align themselves with their Lord and Saviour Jesus. And this is the reason why 
they were facing opposition from unbelievers in their communities. In light of this persecution, Paul reminds the Philippians of two truths to help frame their experiences. Firstly, he reminds them that Jesus warned his followers that they would suffer in the same ways he suffered in verses such as Matthew 10, 22. Paul is reminding the church that suffering is part of living lives worthy of the gospel. He wants the Philippians to be mentally alert to this reality so that it doesn't catch them off guard. We would do well to bear this in mind in our lives here in Seattle. If we're living lives worthy of the gospel, there'll be some people that will be drawn to us and there will be those that are repelled by us. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16 says, For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, we are, we are the aroma of death. So Paul is reminding them that, sorry, secondly, Paul reminds them that he has suffered and is currently suffering in the same way that they are. Paul was writing from a Roman prison and no doubt had suffered greatly for his refusal to bow the knee to any other than Jesus. Paul writes all of this so that the Philippians would not be frightened. Paul wants the Philippian church to live out their their citizenship in heaven, knowing that even if they suffer physically, that their souls are safely kept by God. Jesus says, Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Paul wants to remind the Philippians that eternally speaking, they are indestructible because of the saving work of Jesus. He wants them to be mindful that even if they suffer greatly at the hands of the people, they shouldn't lose heart as they are merely walking in the footsteps of Jesus and Paul with their eternal destiny safe in the hands of Almighty God. Applying this to us, we may not suffer physically because we live, but we, because we live gospel-saturated lives, but we will almost certainly feel the social cost of a life lived for Christ. As we could lose friends and feel our colleagues or neighbours quietly withdraw from us if they see our allegiance to Jesus on display. We must also think of the spiritual battle that we are constantly fighting, whether we are, whether we are aware of it or not. I've had several conversations with members of the Hallows who feel as if we have been experiencing more hardships and struggles lately that could be classified under spiritual attack. Whilst it's unhelpful to view everything hard that happens to us through this lens, it's also a mistake to rule out spiritual warfare entirely. The devil would be absolutely delighted if he could take down the Hallows Church through wearing us down, making us cynical and distrusting. This is certainly an opportune time for him to go after us in the hopes that he can snuff us out. And this is why we need unity right now more than ever before. We need to be hyper-vigilant and not let the devil gain a foothold. We need to press into Jesus to encounter his fierce love and his unwavering grace. We must continue to live out our calling both individually and as a church, seeking to stand firm together, united in the Holy Spirit 
and steadfast in our love for one another. I truly believe that it is possible not only to match, but to surpass the unity I saw on display at the Seattle rugby team. They were united in a love for a game. We, on the other hand, are united by our deep love for the person of Jesus Christ. He has indwelt each and every one of us by his Holy Spirit. We have encountered him, and we know him. So let's let our collective friendships with Jesus be the source of our unity, and may God make us the kind of church that Paul will be happy to hear news about. Why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we get to peer into this, um, this ancient letter from Paul to the Philippians. We praise you so much, Lord, that your word is so relevant that even though we're reading it over 2,000 years or around 2,000 years later, that it's still so relevant um, for the situations that we find ourselves in. We thank you so much, God, for your faithfulness to the Hallows Church. Thank you for your love for your bride, the Hallows Church. Thank you for indwelling us with the Holy Spirit. And I thank you for the ways in which you brought us together over the last few months rather than, you know, force us apart. Thank you so much that that's all to your glory that you've kept us. And Lord, we just want to seek you for the next season. We want to just be so mindful that the devil is prowling like a roaring lion, trying to, trying to devour, trying to undercut us trying to sow seeds of disunity and distrust among us. And just pray, Lord, that you'd help us to stand firm and steadfast. I thank you that everything we do in the Christian life flows from encountering Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to cut through the noise, cut through the, all the other um, things that are vying for our attention, and to make time to have deep encounters with you that, that draw us deeper into a friendship with you, Lord. Thank you that your desire is to draw us into that deep friendship, Lord, and you're pursuing us. So I pray that you'd help us to be really aware of that, Lord, and to really um, respond by pressing into you. And I really do pray, Lord, that you'd be with us um, as we go uh, into our family meeting, Lord God. I really do pray that um, yeah, you would help us to um, yeah, remain united and steadfast as we think about um, our different options going forward, God. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Now we're going we're gonna to have a slightly different um, kind of finish to the service today. Um, one thing that's going to be back to the same as normal is communion. So um, straight after this we're going to share um, communion together. But then we're going to open up just a bit of space um, in the last kind of like three, three songs um, in which to hear from, from you guys. Um, one of the things that you know, I think really falls out of this passage is um, Everybody was united and everybody was encouraging one another and you know, enabling one another to be steadfast um, by, yeah, by encouraging, by, by sharing, by praying for one another. There was, um, you know, elsewhere in the New Testament letters, we just get that sense that everybody came to the meeting with something to bring. And that's kind of what we want to try and um, just sort of test the water with really um, today. So what's gonna happen is we'll have communion and we'll sing the first of the three songs and then at the end of the first song 
Um, we're going to just leave a little bit of a pause. Um, I'm going to be down at the front here with a, like a roaming mic. And if you want to come up and either like pray a prayer or read a scripture or share something that God's been doing in your life recently that you think would be a real, real encouragement, um, or even just something that you really feel like God's been teaching you in your own personal Bible study, um, then it would be so great to hear from you guys. Um, just in terms of practicalities, um, we'll, we'll probably keep it to like two or three people sharing, um, just so that it doesn't kind of run away, run, we don't kind of run away with ourselves. Um, and yeah, try and keep them like fairly kind of succinct and short as well. So like a, a, an example might be, you know, I've been, I've been praying for a neighbor for a really long time, um, and recently we had like a really encouraging conversation about, um, about why, you know, I've chosen to, to follow Jesus. And that, something, something like that where we can all say, Yes and amen. Um, and sort of, yeah, just be encouraged by one another. So I hope that makes sense. Um, yeah, it doesn't need to be like super polished. Like, just please, like, just feel like you can come as you are. And yeah, and think, about, think about it under the bracket of like encouragement. Like what would encourage the body right now um, together? So let me just pray a quick prayer, open up the table, and then we'll, um, yeah, we'll go throughout the rest of um, the service in that manner. So Lord God, um, thank you for communion. Uh, thank you for the, the physical um, way that we get to ingest the, the body and um, blood of Christ through the, um, through the bread and the juice, Lord. Thank you that it reminds us of what you've done for us on the cross and reminds us of the new covenant that you've made with us. So yeah, I pray that you'd um, give us uh, grateful and thankful hearts as we take communion together. And then I just really pray, Lord, that you would... Um, you would speak to us through, um, through the body. Uh, thank you that you've brought us all here today with our own personalities, with our, with our own gifts, with our own backgrounds, our own stories. And I just really pray that the rest of this time would just be such an encouragement that we'd go away just feeling so built up by all that we've um, heard, sung, and considered together. So yeah, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.